Welcome to Get Your Damn Flu Shot, a podcast exploring the most pertinent topics in public health today. We're your hosts, Gianna Musalimus, and I'm Diana Rubin. Our mission is to close the gap between public health and the public, one listener at a time. Hello, Rich. How are you? Good. You doing okay? Yes, sir. How have you been? You look really official with those microphones. <laughs> we were perfect. just saying the same thing. We were like, wow, look at us. You should have seen us like three episodes ago. We were like holding our microphones and dropping our notes. And so we've come a well, long way. Uh, well, you look very professional. And are you, are you then, Gianna, back in the Bay Area? Or I you, am. I am. Are you back in San Antonio then? Yeah. And we're just trying to figure out how we can get in the same room. Thank you so much for talking with us today. We're really excited to introduce you to our audience and give them a little background about you so that they can appreciate you being here as much as we do. So Rich McKeon is co-founder of Levitt Partners and served as the firm's CEO from 2009 until April of 2017. He's worked as chief of staff for Governor Mike Levitt at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And at HHS, he led negotiations between China and the FDA regarding drug device and food issues, which led to landmark agreements and paved the way for placement of the U.S. FDA offices all over the globe. From November 2003 until January 2005, Rich served as senior counselor and chief of staff to Administrator Levitt at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He also co-authored with Governor Mike Levitt a highly acclaimed book called Finding Allies and Building Alliances. So with that, Rich, we're so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you. It's been fun to both talk with you and and prepare for this. So thanks. Thank you. So we're going to jump right in. COVID-19 has swept the globe and has manifested as this century's most notable viral pandemic. This is definitely not the first outbreak we have faced and will not be the last, as you're very familiar with. Can you tell us about your experiences with pandemic preparedness during your time at HHS? Sure. So one of the things I think to recognize is that pandemics are a biologic fact of life. And they happen on, I guess, an irregular, regular basis, about three times per century. And if you kind of look at the major pandemics since 1917, you got HIV AIDS and you've got now coronavirus. But intermittently, you had SARS and Asian flu. And if you go back in time and go back, you find that pandemics literally changed history. They changed the economy of countries, they changed the viability of countries, and they wiped out populations in remarkable ways. And we ought to be a group of people capable of preparing for pandemics in, in unique ways that we ought. In, in 2005 and six, we encountered an incubating virus in China that was avian bird flu, and it was a H5N1 flu and and we began to question whether or not it would become pandemic-like. And one of the key factors in this is when transmission between these diseases goes human to human, then you have, as soon as that occurs, 
that becomes a concern worldwide. And that began to occur in China. And that therefore concerned us as we prepared for a kind of the, the normal agenda at Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services, by the way, I mean, it has some of the most remarkable agencies in it of all National Institutes of Health, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Federal Drug Administration, and, and 27 total agencies just as big, including welfare and aging and all the rest of that. But as you begin to look at the obligation that the federal government has to try and recognize these, you begin to look at the fact that, number one, there's an obligation, we think, to, and we begin to evaluate the stockpile. Did we have the therapeutics necessary to begin to deal with this? And, mm -hmm. and on a regular basis, Secretary Dan Levitt would send a weekly report to President Bush and would say, we believe that this is incubating in a way that allows us to prepare for pandemics in a way that we've never prepared for them before. And so we began with the president's assistance and an executive order to get funding that allowed for the creation of a stockpile that allowed the production of all sorts of other things in order to prepare for this in a way that we had not prepared for. We held summits around the country. Mike Lowe went to 39 himself, but they were organized by governors in every state and every territory. And their purpose was preparedness. And one of the things that one recognizes is that the federal government is not the controlling entity in pandemic preparation. Hmm. The reality is that this is a global kind of, of concern and in, in the sense that every state needs to be prepared. Right. Every county and community needs to be prepared. Every individual and every family and every business needs to be prepared. We'll begin to see play this play out in a way that recognizes that there's enough unpreparedness to go around. And that has been the virtue of a lapse since 2006 when we kind of amped up this national plan. And frankly, I think at the conclusion of the tenure of Mike Levitt at HHS, we were in pretty good shape to deal with pandemics. The difficulty is this, that pandemics occur, as I mentioned, about three times a century. There's long enough between them that people say, not going to worry about that anymore. And so our capacity to develop vaccines evaporated again, even though right. we had built that up. So what key takeaways from the 2005 pandemic preparedness plan can inform our current COVID response? So anything you say in advance of a pandemic sounds like you're an alarmist and anything that you try to say afterwards will be viewed publicly as inadequate. I think you can see the sense of that because that has definitely played out here. But a couple of other things that distinguish pandemics. And we had an interesting meeting. I actually orchestrated a meeting with the Department of Interior who fights firefighters to say, what do you do to prepare for the fire season? And there's a big difference here because hmm. pandemics are simultaneous. They're ubiquitous. And the other thing is people do not rush in to help. We've kind of seen the social distancing. People try to avoid and stay away from, whereas in forest fires, there's always a community involvement component and they have to manage this volunteer brigade that begins to come in. And while I think people have been remarkable in their individual treatment of neighbors and friends and communities and the like, that is quite a different thing than coming into volunteers. So they're different in their, in their way of disasters. 
And I think, I think the other thing that I would mention, the national government is big picture. I mean, they really are collaborating on vaccines, building the stockpile, creating a policy, allowing support for the states and communities, but they are not the owner of a pandemic in their entirety. The states and counties have it. I mean, when you think about it, let's say we get a vaccine and the vaccine comes, it's gonna have to be distributed. But at the end of the day, it's gonna be local public health folks that are gonna be putting needles in people's arms. And for my state, that's 3,200,000 people. And that's a small state where you all are going to school. That's a lot of needle pokes. And it's a lot of public health that has to be managed, organized, and efficiently directed towards that. So, so that, I have a reaction to one thing you were saying, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, so I'm thinking about, um, I, I hadn't heard you talk about how you had gone to the, the firefighters and, and kind of understanding preparedness, like what great lessons I'm sure can be learned from them. One place my mind immediately jumped was, okay, well, we all see huge fires. We can see them on the news. We see the helicopter circle over them and they're they're just devastating. They're so destructive. Then I think about how you were saying these viruses in general is that even if three happen in a century, that time in between people kind of forget about it. There's this lapse. And if you can't see something like a fire and it's just in the air and maybe, you know, you know of someone who knows someone who got sick, but talk about individual responsibility. I know a lot of people kind of saying, oh, well, out of sight, out of mind. So I'm wondering and just thinking about preparedness and COVID response, do you think COVID will change that attitude us as humans? Like, are we now going to be more sensitive to the word pandemic? So for the short term, yes. Number one, it, this is going to change some fundamental behavior. Right. Yeah, for instance, you look at other parts of our industry, like the food industry, and their they're business, there are food uh, preparers and restaurants who say, oh, we're doing this all the time. I love to take it out to the curb and not to clean tables and all the rest of that. Yeah. I don't know what's going to change. But I can guarantee you that despite the fact that in 2006, one of the things that the the federal government left in good shape was pandemic preparedness. There was a plan, there was a stockpile, and over the course of, I don't know where it happened, but but budget dollars are precious in any government system. And priorities begin to change the nature of this. There was an entire lab set up in North Carolina to develop vaccines and it went away. Our capacity to develop vaccines is now still very, very remote. But we had tried to accelerate that and build it. And so the memory, I think, is short in terms of this. And I, I think the things that will last will be the cultural changes that people can accept. The hard part is to maintain systems that you may not during your tenure in office have to activate. And maybe the dollars will be directed someplace else. Yeah, that, that makes choices. That it is government is about choices. That's the bottom line. And that's one thing that Gianna and I have studied, and I've particularly been really interested in. And there's some major psychological changes going to happen from this. Kids are now learning on screen. What's that going to look like? You know, we are now all interacting this way. I'm sure from a human behavior perspective, things will shift. From a government budget perspective, you know, we've, this has happened before. Dollars are allocated rapidly. Years go by. Maybe those dollars aren't 
allocated the same way. But I do know about the global pandemic response team in the White House, where that was in 2009. And it's interesting to see how dismantled that group ended up being during this COVID pandemic. Do you have any sense as to why? Sure. I mean, I just the, the sense of urgency. There's a difference in government between reaction and proactivity. And the, the capacity to plan for events and to is difficult if it isn't confronting you. In other words, there's a certain degree of crisis orientation that allows motivation. And I think the edge goes off and people say dollars go elsewhere. These are policy decisions. This is what government does. It makes choices between how to allocate the precious dollars that it has. And, you know, we've seen a lot of that happen here, but policy, in my opinion, done on as reaction is done at the margins. Policy that is developed proactively is typically developed on the basis of principles. And those principles guide you as you go through this and they can create a fundamental way to to move through a crisis because you prepared with a set of principles that are going to guide what you do. And that's basically what we did in in the, uh, the pandemic preparation that we engaged in. So what are your thoughts on the current local, state, and federal government responses to COVID? So this is interesting because I think one of the things that, that has not been particularly well is an articulation of the different roles that each of these entities plays. And I think when you have the federal government making statements that are bold and, and broad, that what happens is people begin to believe that the ownership of this problem is at that level. And there's plenty to go around. And so I, I just think that, you know, we talk about what the federal government should be doing. We mentioned that stockpiles and testing and vaccines and supporting the states, but the states, because these are ubiquitous, they are also, they tend to impact different regions at different times. There literally can be waves of this. And the latitude for states and communities to begin to figure this out and to lighten or, or you know, or tighten things up on a social distancing on the basis of what they're seeing in the data is important. So the data, I think, the ability to evaluate and analyze and learn and to react and to evolve. One of the things I think has been interesting is the criticism of the evolving thinking of some of those who are leading this. And they say, well, you said this before, you said, Listen, we're learning about this pandemic. We're, we're learning about this bug. Every day we learn right. more about it. And I would not feel comfortable if there wasn't an evolution in thinking. And yet that evolution, it's kind of like in government. If you say a number, you're going to be stuck with that number forever. Right. And that's kind of what's happened here is that when people make statements, broad statements about how long could this, you know, the social distancing last, well, it becomes informed by lots of different things. The data. And, um, as you analyze the data, you react to it that way. So data is critical, as is the, the metrics that you use to kind of measure what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That, does that answer that question? It does. And I love that point. I think it's, it's something I really want to like even just stress to the audience that's listening. Because one thing that we don't really realize all the time is that, you know, America's like defense system against this pandemic is a patchwork of I think it's like over 2,500 different state and local health departments all trying to navigate and be responsible and monitor their 
specific jurisdiction. So we can like quickly understand how this becomes so chaotic and how things get put out there, you know, and are said and maybe needing to be retracted or data leads us another way. You know, with 2,500 or more departments trying to figure out this one problem, we, you know, we can see that. And I think that there should be a little more attention drawn to responsibility and finger pointing because I, I don't think it's as easy, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, as, as people want it to be. Yeah, and you point out accurately that the reaction to it probably should deservedly be different depending on the locale and the intensity of it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, not every state and every community has experienced what New York City has experienced. Right. And that's one thing I've had to learn being in Texas. Yeah. No, it's, it's exactly right. And, and you hope for wise and prudent leadership as people begin to, to think through this and that they're getting the data they need and that they're evaluating the right data. In other words, what is the right data? Is it gross number of tests? Is it positive tests? Is it transmissibility rate? People need to evaluate this from the standpoint of getting to a zero right. somewhere. Well, speaking of wise and prudent leadership exactly. in regards to exactly. Dr. Those- Fauci. During your time with the HHS and the EPA, you worked closely with our favorite epidemiologist, Dr. Fauci. Can you tell us about your experiences working with him during the H5N1 pandemic? Yeah, let me prelude that with something, though, that I was in government for 12 years. I never thought I would spend 12 years in government, but I I was enticed in and I found it to be one of the most enriching times of, of my life. And one of the reasons was, as at the state level, at the EPA, at the federal level, at HHS, I ran into remarkable, smart, and capable people. You go down the hall at HHS, and you run into a PhD, an MD, a JD. It was all the same person. And you said, how could this possibly be? And, and they had these brilliant people. And yeah, that's where we need to go recruit for our podcast. Yeah, there, <laughs> the uh, Hall of HHS. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. You get some really smart people. But the thing is, is that a lot of the MDs who are there have gotten to the point where they love their practices and almost every doctor mm-hmm. maintains their license by going out and doing things. But they then concluded that they wanted to have an impact on policy at a broader level rather than on a patient-by-patient level. And Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, is one of those amazing people. He's smart. He's experienced. He's wise. He's a really good guy. He's fun to be around. He's trustworthy. He's a baseball fan. And if you were to ask him, though, this is the part that I think we reflected on momentarily a minute ago, and that is his, his thinking has evolved in this process as well. And we sometimes don't give people in those positions the ability to evolve we want to hold them to what they said at some particular point in time. And Absolutely. That's such a good point. With our own political thinking or the like. So it gets into this notion of, of science, and he's, he's a scientist. But science and policy are interesting things. And you hear and see placards that say science should be policy. But science informs policy. Science is not policy. And science, as you know, can be based on different assumptions and come to different results. And it's most dramatically influencing things like climate, where you can 
find a science for just about any position you want to take. Now, does that mean it's bad science or is it just different assumptions that are made about things? And usually you don't know until you play these things out. But science informs policy and policy is informed by not only science, but economics and social uh, consequences and the impacts of a dozen different things. And so it is not the only basis upon which you make decisions from a policy perspective. And I think that often people want to say, oh, well, you're, you're kind of neglecting science. Science informs and it impacts it dramatically, but it doesn't become policy in and of itself. I just I was impressed at CDC. I was impressed at NIH. I was impressed at FDA. I worked closely with these people. I came to have not only great affection for them personally, but I came to have remarkable, I just thought them to be remarkable in their capability and capacity to analyze and evaluate and to react and to be part of collaborative mm-hmm. teams. Yeah. Well, Rich, switching from your work in the government space to your now work at Levitt Partners and into the private sector, I want to ask you quickly, in relation to your book, Finding Allies and Building Alliances, you speak a lot about this kind of intersection between public and private partnerships and respective roles, I guess, that they have within the healthcare industry. Can you tell us a little bit about what Levitt Partners, the company you helped found, what they're doing or what their role is in this kind of interaction between the public and private sector alliance? So Levitt Partners has been premised upon the concept of collaborative thinking and finding allies and building alliances as a book, as you reflect, that attempts to, to evaluate how to accelerate progress as opposed to having contentious conflict about that just collides and ends up someplace in the middle. Our thinking is is that if you bring the diffuse groups of people together, and if you evaluate it collectively, and if you are about the process of trying to solve a problem as opposed to to prove a position, that you you can achieve remarkable results on an accelerated basis. And I can give you example after example, but what motivated this was acceleration of progress. And the book attempts to evaluate a series of elements that if deployed, we believe, allow for successful collaborations between individuals, governments, but between government and the private sector. The government is at a point where it has a difficulty dealing with some of the issues because we we are working at such a fast pace that regulators are, are not able to kind of keep up with the pace of technological change. Mm-hmm. So you think about driverless cars or drones just at, as examples that, that there's a real struggle because there's very different opinions in the government about how your work with the private sector can help. And it's these coalitions of, of learning together that can that, that can help. And that's been the premise of that. And I don't know if that answers your question or if Absolutely it, it does. I think what I would want to ask is just to understand a little bit better how the private sector has been able to help the COVID response. So my understanding is that the private sector is engaged in remarkable collaborative efforts relative to the development of a vaccine, that there is sharing going on that typically doesn't. We've set up a system in the U.S. to invite the ownership and privacy of of information about cancer and other diseases that says that if we can solve it, we'll be the ones who are the Jonas Salk who solved the polio problem. 
but I think there's more sharing going on in the private sector, both on therapeutics and vaccines than there has been. And the government can accelerate and help that mm -hmm. process along. And I've watched that happen, frankly, in the exercises that we went on in 2005 and six, because we had no capacity to develop vaccines in the US. And there was a grant of money to allow us to begin to process that and to develop the capacity to, to new vaccines and it got to a point where we were succeeding and able to respond effectively but they've been mothballed those efforts so is it true that the private sector is able to kind of expedite things i think about even just covid testing like what would it look like if the government had only deployed state health departments to go do all the testing and they hadn't, you know, contracted with LabCorp or Quest Diagnostics or all of these other places that you now can go get a COVID test. So 325 million people, the capacity to test is one of the litmus tests that's being deployed to say that if we can test effectively and efficiently, and then if we can contact trace, that would be Gianna with you with regards to epidemiology, mm -hmm. doing the detective work, that if these things can occur on a rapid and, and dramatic basis, then, then we have the ability to curb this and, and to cut it off before it becomes really significant in terms of transmission. So the answer is, I think that it's essential that we have government private sector collaboration to solve these problems. It cannot be done in one sector or the other. And I think the capacity for them to work together is the accelerant to, to the progress here. So that just kind of leads us to our last couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guests. If you could give the entire country one piece of advice, and specifically speaking to our audience, millennials, what would that be? So my, my advice would be that first, we need to recognize that there is both community and individual risk factors that are different. Millennials, have among them groups of people who are vulnerable by virtue of their conditions. And their personal risk tolerance should be less than those who have no vulnerabilities. But I think the, the two things I would tell them that, that millennials are stay in touch and make sure that you're understanding what the impact of this disease is on you individually. Right. What are its impacts short-term and long-term? And number two, I think that the millennial group has a responsibility to step up in a community way to help those around you who are in vulnerable categories, to be asking your neighbors and friends who are not going out, is there anything you need? Is there anything I can get you? I'm going to the store today, what can I get? And I think there's this grand moment of community developing that can happen that I think is inherent in the group of people that you represent by virtue of age. And that is to ask the question, how can I help? And I it's that. a changer in the, in the scheme of things. And we're all in this together, but we are all in different risk stratus. Right. And the, the ability that you have to exercise this independent and, and to go out in your communities in a more uh, safe way, I think, it's the thing that distinguishes you and allows you to really develop community in ways that will be important down the road. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Um, and one other thing, you just throw this in, whatever, but I've been really troubled by the politicization of a health issue. 
And I think that the facts and the like tell us that we're better off when we all recognize what the danger is in front of us. And what I haven't felt as much as I would have thought, though more than some would have thought, I think, is this, the pulling together of communities to take care of this as a health issue instead of a political one. And it hurts me to, to see this. Yeah. Therapy apart from a political perspective, because that should be the last thing we're talking about. Absolutely. My next question to you was going to be just that. What is one thing that's surprised you? And I think, you know, for Gianna and I both, we're, we've been really surprised. We've studied public health in this textbook kind of lens, and now it's in real life. And it's been really surprising. I mean, of course, we've studied studied leadership and all the likes in public health, but to see how politicized this has gotten that has fogged the accuracy of the data and the claims that are being made has been, you know, real concerning. So I almost want to like just take this segment, push it to the top of the podcast because it's so important. Like this is a millennial opportunity and chance to step up in our communities to ask what we can do to help. So I think it's, it's a really good point that Rich makes. And you know, this is a, when you begin to talk about policy and you talk about government, I'm actually surprised that a lot of the people at the national level are older folks. This is a generational relay between people. And it is, you know, this is a time when now the young community needs to step up, in my opinion, with the goodness of your hearts, which Mm -hmm. I sense and feel because of my ability to be around you in the workplace. And that is this desire to reach out and help and to say in different ways than maybe my generation did as baby boomers, how can we make communities and how can we make life better for people? And I I sense that among this group of people generally, it's great to be around people who feel that way. It's a real moment to step up. Absolutely. We have one last question for you, Rich, and it is our favorite one. What has been your favorite snack during quarantine? So that's really, I think I have to think about this just for a moment (laughs) because I have, I'll ramble as I get there, but I'm going to get you an answer. I have really been an at-home guy most of the time. I play golf more than I've played in my entire life in the afternoons because it can be done safely and and it's a good exercise. So the best snack... I love watching people get to the answer. You're like, well, you know, I have a lot of pizza, but I guess that's not a snack. And it's like uh, you learn so much about a person. I I am a chocolate chip cookie fanatic. Ooh. Best snack that I've had. Do you like the cookie dough? I like cookie dough. I love ice cream as well, but I really try to stay away from, from as much as I can. But Chocolate chip cookies are probably my predominant snack. And there is a place in Utah, I guess it's okay to say the name of Goodly Cookies. They make a chocolate chip cookie that can drown most sorrows and make people feel delighted on the way to a fat attack that will peril. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm, I'll just tell you, it's, it's a great feeling to just I lay, love that. lay with your arms and legs spread out. <laughs> from eating this large <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I wish I had the opportunity to come to Utah this summer and try that cookie. Well, if you but come But soon over, enough. <laughs> very great. 
Well, Rich, thank you so much. We don't want to take any more of your morning, but we really appreciate you coming on this podcast. This has been a really, really cool conversation and we're really excited to share it with our audience. Well, I hope it's productive. It's been fun to do and I've enjoyed getting acquainted with both of you a little better. Yeah, I love it. Great to see you both. Take care. Thanks for listening to Get Your Damn Flu Shot. So this is the part where I tell you all to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. You can find us on all major host platforms like iTunes and Spotify. But really what we ask of you in a time like this, we need your help. The world needs your help to get the word out there. So don't just listen. Share with your family, your friends, and your pets. Send them a link so we can all stay connected. Email us at gydfspodcast at gmail.com to join the conversation. And uh, remember to get your damn flu shots.